We are continuing our, our, our series today uh, called The Greatest Story, The Unexpected Narrative of Jesus. How many of you guys are tired of me saying that? Because <laughs> this is like Sermon 43 <laughs> in this series, but I'm not. I'm not. Just by the way, I'm not tired of saying it. I love it. I love this, uh, this sermon series we're going through. It's this journey through the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And, and the best part of this, that, that at least for me, the best part of this is that we get to kind of see some of the major and the minor stories of the Bible. And, and, and the best part is this, is discovering how God reveals himself through often countercultural, counter-social, and counterintuitive ways, and that he engages with humanity in such a loving way. And so today we're continuing our story with our look at 1 Kings, and, and this is our story in Elijah, uh, story of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. And we'll just give you kind of a quick recap for those of you who uh, haven't uh, stuck with us for, for the series of Elijah. Um, so up until this point, uh, uh, we've had kind of a, quite an adventurous journey with, with Elijah, with this prophet. Because uh, he comes out of nowhere. He comes, like, literally out of nowhere. You know, he, he comes and he announces this drought as a punishment. God feeds him through, through ravens and, and, and brings him food. And then, then he gets moved from the ravine and the ravens to, to find shelter in the land of Sidon, which is kind of a foreign nation, and, and the land of Sarepta. Um, and he finds this widow and her son, and, and God provides another miracle, because he provides the miracle of the ravens and, and the ravine, and then he provides another miracle with the widow, where he keeps the oil and the flour going until the drought is over, and then the widow's son dies, unfortunately. We didn't cover that part of the story, but uh, it's in First Kings 17. The widow's son dies. He prays over the boy, and God comes in again miraculously and brings the boy back to life. And, and eventually, then in chapter 18, Elijah confronts King Ahab, and, and all of the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, and he challenges them and their god, Baal, to a, to a showdown of the gods on Mount Carmel. And he kind of says, whichever god responds to this showdown, whichever god responds to this request uh, with fire to consume the offering, that is the god that all of you, that Israel, should follow, right? Uh, and then we find through the story that Baal doesn't answer in fact, cannot answer, right? He's unable to answer the challenge. But Yahweh, this is Elijah's God, Yahweh sends down fire and consumes the altar and the offering. And the people then turn back to Yahweh. They begin to praise the Lord. And under Elijah's command, they take all 450 of the priests of Baal and they go down to ravine and then they slaughter them. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. But rain finally comes back to the land. And at the end of chapter 18, we get this really kind of weird story um, I always think it's hilarious just because Elijah tucks in his cloak into his belt. And he probably looks a little weird. Then he starts like running really fast. Uh, and he runs faster than Ahab's chariots, right? And he beats Ahab all the way to Jezreel to deliver the good news that the drought is over, that rain is coming, that the clouds are approaching. And so this is where we start our story in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1. It'll be available on the screen for you if you want to follow along with us. Uh, 1 Kings 19, verse 1. It says, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all of the prophets of Baal with sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of the prophets that you've killed. 
Elijah was afraid in verse 2 or verse 3, and he ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, um, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die, saying, I have had enough, Lord. I have had enough. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. He just needed a nap. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and then lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much. We talked about this yesterday in our Friday class. Uh, You guys know that Snickers slogan? You're not you when you're hungry? That's Elijah. (laughs) You're not you when you're hungry. So he gets up and he eats and he says, the angel says, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank and strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night and the word of the Lord came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? So Elijah hears this message first from Jezebel. And he's terrified. He runs for his life. He's terrified of her murderous rage. She's the queen of Israel. And Jezebel, she swears an oath by the gods, promising to kill Elijah like he had killed all of her prophets. Now, oaths by the gods were the highest form of oaths, right? We talk about oaths as covenants. So covenants always had to, you had to promise uh, using the name of someone greater than you. So if you promised by the king, or if you promised by a wealthy ancestor, those are kind of like high promises. But the highest promise you could make is by swearing to the gods. Right? You swear to the gods that you're going to do something. And these people really did actually believe in the gods. You know, they, 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 The gods weren't just this intangible, ethereal concept that sometimes we feel like it is. Right? We believe in God, but it's never as sometimes as present as we believe. We don't feel as a physical manifestation all the time. But these people really did. They believed that the gods were real, like 100% real, affecting the world in some way or another, always, at all times. Everything that occurred on earth was a result of something that was happening in the spiritual realms. That's what they believed. So an oath by the gods was incredibly important. It was the highest form of oath you could possibly make. And she says, she says this, basically, we'll kind of put it in layman's terms. She says, I swear to God, if I don't kill you tomorrow, may God kill me. That's what Jezebel says. She says, I swear to God, if I don't kill you tomorrow, may God kill me. It's a type of oath that really puts the pressure on you, right? Because they believe that the gods are real. And they believe that the gods would actually kill her if she didn't come through with her promise. So she's really saying, she's like, I'm putting the pressure on myself to kill you by tomorrow, right? And so Elijah is then terrified because he hears this promise. He hears this threat, this oath to the gods from the queen of Israel, and Elijah runs away. He's terrified. He runs. But Elijah is hot off the miracle of the fire. You see that pun? I threw it in there. He's hot off the miracle of the fire, He's just seen Yahweh manifest himself and come through in a powerful way. He's confirmed that Obadiah and Yahweh have saved a hundred of the prophets of the Lord in caves, right? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And now, now, at the end of chapter 18, God has finally sent rain on the land after three years of drought. Elijah has proven that the false gods of Jezebel have literally no power. They can't do anything. 
He's proven that they are powerless to fulfill, to answer, to come in. Not to mention the fact that he's also proven that Yahweh is an all-powerful God. That Yahweh can come through. But still he's afraid. He's terrified and he runs away to Beersheba in Judah. But then he goes further into the wilderness. And, and I know we're going to have a, a, on the next slide. You can go to the next slide, Alex. Um, because I know that a lot of us don't often have the map of Israel ingrained in our minds. Not even me. I have no idea where these cities are. But he starts from Jezreel up where the kind of line starts at the top, right? So remember that the nation of Israel is divided into two portions. The northern kingdom, which is Israel up to the north, that's kind of the orange part. And then the southern kingdom, which is Judah down to the south, which is the kind of like purplish blue part. So uh, Elijah is his calling where God has told him to be, where God has told him to minister, where God has told him to affect and make an impact is the nation of Israel up to the north. He's in Jezreel. You see where Jezreel is? Up there. He's the northern portion of the northern tribes. And he's so terrified, he lets fear rule him. He's so terrified of, of this promise that Jezebel has made that he runs as far south as he can to Beersheba. See how there are no other major cities around Beersheba? He goes as far south to the southern kingdoms as he possibly can. It's about 153 kilometers. So he travels day and night without stopping. That's why he's exhausted at the very end of this journey. He, he runs from the northern kingdom to the southern kingdom. And then, and then he, he goes to, go to the next slide. Because then he goes further, right? Now he goes from Beersheba, and we're going to get there in a second. He travels a day further into the wilderness, south even more. And then God calls him further still down all the way to Mount Sinai. That's where he spends the 40 days and 40 nights journeying through the wilderness, right? Uh, but he lays down, before he goes down to Mount Sinai at the very bottom, he lays down underneath a bush or underneath a brush or a tree. He's exhausted from traveling, and he, he, he asks, he says, he says, please kill me, God. He says, I, I, I am no better than my ancestors. Right? And what he's really saying is, I have failed to do what you have called me to do. I have failed to eradicate idol worship in Israel, so now I shouldn't live any, any longer. Right? Uh, but the angel feeds him and strengthens him to travel because there's still more to come. There's still more to the story for Elijah. God isn't done with him yet. And so he travels for another 40 days in the wilderness to reach Mount Horeb. And, and, and when he gets to Mount Horeb, he hides in a cave where he encounters the Lord. Yahweh presents himself. And the first thing that God says to him, what's the first thing God says? He says, what are you doing here? He says, what are you doing here? This is our first lesson today. Our first lesson is run for, not from your calling. Run for, not from your calling. You see, God asks Elijah this question because he's not where he's supposed to be. He is way outside of the place of ministry that God has called him to. Elijah's calling was to the nation of Israel to the north, but now he's not just in the nation to the south. He's gone further still into the wilderness of Paran and the Sinai Peninsula. That's not where God has called him to be. And just a few days ago, if you look at chapter 18, it won't be up there, but just a few days ago, if you look at chapter 18, the very end of the story, it says the spirit of the Lord fell on Elijah and he was strengthened to run ahead of the chariots of, of Ahab and run all the way to Jezreel to deliver the word that rain was coming. His ministry was in Jezreel. But now, in fear, Elijah runs from Jezreel and hides out in the wilderness to the far 
south. You see, the Spirit of the Lord gave him strength to run for his calling, towards his calling. But now fear has driven him to run from his calling. You guys following? We're seeing the story here uh, develop. Elijah's running for his calling in chapter 18, but fear sets in and he lets fear drive him and fear pushes him to run from his calling. And I, and I can almost hear kind of like the perplexity and the disappointment in God's voice as he asks Elijah, what are you doing here? Like, this is not where I've called you to be. This is, you're not even close to where I have called you to be. And God had answered like so many times. We read the story of Elijah. God had answered so many times Elijah's prayers, whether it's resurrecting the, the dead boy, whether it's providing the flour and the oil, whether it's giving him food through the ravens, whether it's answering the prayer to bring down the fire. God had answered by sending him fire. God had taken care of him. God had fed him miraculously. God had given him, uh, him an unlimited supply of flour and oil with the widow in the middle of a severe drought. But yet the moment that things get hard, he runs away. Or, or the moment that things get harder, I should say, because things have already been hard. There's been a drought. There's been some difficult moments that Elijah has faced. There's been some challenges that he's faced. But the moment that things get harder, the moment it escalates, he runs away. And if you read the story of Elijah, the story of Elijah has kind of a crescendo effect. You guys know what a crescendo is? I had to Google it because I know the word, but I don't know what it means. And I was like, this sounds like a cool word, so I'm going to use it. Crescendo is kind of like, I think it's a musical term. Someone correct me if I'm wrong. Where it kind of builds up. Right? It's this, this intensity that kind of starts small and builds up. So if you, if you read the story of Elijah, Elijah has this crescendo effect happening in his life. The, the miracles that, that occur, that God performs, uh, progressively increase in intensity and power. Right? The limitless God does more and more and greater and greater things for his people. And now the challenge of Jezebel comes, an opportunity for God to come through again, even greater, the crescendo effect, but Elijah runs. And we often do the same thing in our lives, right? We have a threshold for how much difficulty we can tolerate. We have a threshold for how hard we can allow things to get. And when we reach that threshold, we then face a dilemma. Do we run and abandon the place that God has called us to, or do we trust God to come through again and hold on? See, our lives also have a crescendo effect. Because the more we follow God, the more difficult things get. Is that true? Yeah? Hopefully all of you guys are trying to follow God and know it. Or maybe, maybe you're not. I don't know. I don't know what the case is for you, but the more you follow God, I've found this true for my life. The more you follow God, the more difficult things get. But the more difficult things get, the more God comes through. Right? The more difficult things get, the more God comes through. You see it in the story of Elijah. Right? Things got difficult for Elijah. The ravine dried up. The widow's son died. He was challenging the prophets of Baal, but every single time, God came through, and God came through bigger and better. The more difficult, the more we follow God, the more difficult things get, but the more difficult things get, the more God comes through. So trusting this pattern that occurs, not just in the story of Elijah, but in our lives as well, trusting this pattern 
that, that this pattern will continue as an act of faith based not on nothing, right? This act of faith is not based on nothing. It is based on the loving consistency of God to come through for us again and again and again, right? The act of faith can happen because we know that God has come through again and again and again. So when we face that next increase in pressure, when we face that next threshold of difficulty, we get to choose whether we let the Spirit of God empower us to run for our calling or whether we turn tail and run from our calling. And I want to make this clear because we often associate God's calling with career paths, right? We talk about that a lot. Uh, we, oh, God's calling for me is to be such and such a career, whatever the case is, right? But I'm not just talking about career paths because God's calling is not just exclusively to what direction your life heads in or what job you have. That, 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 that's too narrow-minded. God has a calling for every single part of your life. God might have a calling for your career, yes, but he also has a calling for every single moment that you face. Every moment and every decision, God has a calling for you there. God's calling for you could, could be to, more, to be more generous with your finances, not just in giving at church, but in giving to others. Seeing people in need and being generous to others. We talked about this a while ago, not counting the cost when it comes to being the love of Jesus, right? God's calling for you might be to step out of your comfort zone and invite that new person out to lunch or connect with that new neighbor who's just moved in or talk to the new coworker who's just started there. God's calling for you might be to approach that stranger you somehow feel weirdly drawn to so that you can share a word of encouragement to change that person's life, to affect something that you have no idea is going on. God's calling for you appears in those feelings, in those thoughts, in those convictions to do something good for other people around you, even if it makes you a little uncomfortable. That's what God's calling for you is. You can run to that calling or from that calling. And especially if it makes you uncomfortable. I'll give you a little, little pro tip here. If a thought pops into your mind, or you get a feeling to do something, something kind for someone else, something good for someone else, if that feeling challenges you, and it pushes you out of your comfort zone, or it makes you just a little bit uncomfortable, I can almost guarantee you that that is God's calling for you in that moment. I know you don't want to hear that <laughs> because it's, it's easy to remain comfortable, right? It's easy not to step out. In fact, we enjoy doing that more often than not, right? We'd prefer to not have to talk to that new person and make that small talk. I hate small talk. I'm an introvert, but I, I have to do it because if that's what God's calling is for me, that's what I got to do. You know, we hate doing those things. We hate pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone. But if that's what God's calling for our lives, then we get to choose whether we run to it or run from it. Whatever God's calling is, right? We can choose to run for our calling, facing the difficulty ahead, trusting God to come through again, or we can give up too soon and ignore the thought, ignore the conviction, ignore those moments that God has called us to and run in a cave and hide. But sooner or later, Sooner or later, if we choose the latter, if we choose to run and hide, sooner or later, God is going to come through and he's going to ask, what are you doing here? Because it's not where I've called you to be, right? So right now, in this moment, this is the question before I move on to the, to the next portion of the text. Are you where God has called you to be? 
Think about that for a second. Not just like physically present here, but like in your life, in the actions you've chosen this week, in whether you've chosen to follow through with those convictions and those thoughts and those feelings. Are you where God has called you to be or are you running south? Right? Run for your calling, not from it. Verse 8, let's continue on. So Elijah got up and he ate and he drank and strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and he spent the night and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. You see, the Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down your altars and put your prophets to the death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. And the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind, and I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with this portion of the story, a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle and when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him again, what are you doing here, Elijah? See, Elijah is, is on the run. He's ready to die, but God isn't done with him yet. So he sends these angels to feed him, to strengthen him, to encourage him to, for, for a journey further south. Because if Elijah's running, God's going to go with him then. God's like, all right, if you're running, then, then we're going to go with you. We're going to have an encounter. We're going to talk about this. We're going to meet up somewhere. And, and so Elijah runs 40 days and 40 nights. And we're going to talk about for a second here, because I, I want to pause from the story. I'm going to talk about just how much of a drama queen Elijah is. I don't know if you guys read the story the same way I do, but I see drama, capital D-R-A-M-A, -A, like all caps, drama queen. Because we talk about how a lot of the prophets in the Bible, whenever they come onto the scene, whenever they come with this proclamation of this judgment, it usually starts with, and the word of the Lord came to such and such. So we know that God is already speaking to this person. The word of the Lord came to this person. This is what God wants you to say. So he goes out and he says it. But when you have the story of Elijah, there's no such introduction. There is no, and the word of the Lord came to Elijah in chapter 17. Elijah just comes on the scene. He just kind of bursts in. And then also, he's, he's, he's a person, he's a Tishbite from Tishbe, which literally means he's a nobody from nowhere. Like, the, his whole history is shrouded in mystery. His lineage, we don't know anything about him. He comes in out of nowhere, and then he comes in delivering this judgment. But he says this. He says, there will be no rain nor dew until I say so. That's the drama of Elijah. Not until Yahweh says so, not until the Lord comes back, not until you have repented and turned back to God, because a lot of the times these promises or these judgments are contingent on whether they turn back to God. But this is not what Elijah he says. He says, there will be no rain nor dew until I say so. The drama of Elijah. Elijah being the one that determines when the punishment is over. The next chapter, God says, there will be no rain until I say so. That's what God says, kind of correcting Elijah there. But then there's the showdown of the gods. All right, in chapter 18, no specific direction from Yahweh. Yahweh doesn't speak to Elijah about this whole thing, but Elijah comes up with the challenge. He goes, this whole fire thing, uh, screams drama. Whoever sends fire from heaven, that's the God, right? And then Elijah follows it up because 
a lot of the times we don't read this story. I didn't touch on it the last time we, we read the story because I didn't want to reach it until this moment right here. But Elijah follows up this miraculous fire from Yahweh by gathering all the prophets of Baal and slaughtering 450 of them himself. We don't often read that. We don't remember that. It's not the nicest thing to read. But Elijah does that. He slaughters 450 of the prophets himself. And now Jezebel, understandably mad, threatens him and he runs as far south as he possibly can. He's like, I'm not just running from Jezreel. I'm going as far south as I possibly can. And once I've reached the furthest south, I'm still going to go further south into the wilderness where there's no cities, no civilization, nothing. I'm going out there. And he lays under a tree. Oh, God, kill me. Elijah, the drama of Elijah, everything with Elijah is over the top. It's grandiose, it's dramatic. And then we're going to see something that, that God does. Very interesting that God does. We're going to see something as, as God shows up. But before God shows up and approaches Elijah and talks to Elijah, he says, go and journey 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness until you reach the mountain of Horeb. Right? 40 in the, in, in the Bible is often representing of a time period leading up to some sort of spiritual encounter, some sort of spiritual revelation. So we know as soon as we read 40 days and 40 nights that Elijah is going to come to some big re revelation from God. And so he goes all the way down to Mount Horeb. And in, in case you didn't know, Mount Horeb is also known as Mount Sinai. You guys know what Mount Sinai is? Some of you are familiar with Mount Sinai? That's where, that's where God appeared to Moses, gave him the Ten Commandments, Right? It's also where God appears in Exodus 33 and 34 and, and shows him his glory. Moses like, show me your glory. God shows up, right? Um, and it's interesting because it says here that Elijah went to Mount, to Mount Sinai, to Mount Horeb, and it says he went into a cave, a cave. But what the Hebrew actually literally says is, is it uses a definite article. A definite article is, is, is the word the, and it's used to describe something very specific. So the word that the Hebrew chooses, he went into the cave, not a cave. He went into the cave cave. The idea being that Elijah is mimicking this journey that Moses goes through to encounter God. So Elijah doesn't just go to a random cave. The idea presented here by the author is that Elijah goes to the very specific cave that Moses hid in when God passes by with his glory. And we're going to see the same thing happen. God passes by with his glory with Elijah, right? So God tells Elijah that he's about to pass by. And we read that a strong gust of wind comes in and it shatters the mountain rocks. And we read that an earthquake comes by and it shakes every inch of the ground. And we read that a fire surrounds the mountain and consumes up every shrub and dry bush. But God is not in any of those things. God is not in the fire. God is not in the wind. God is not in the earthquake. But after all of that comes a gentle whisper, a still, small voice, the quietness that occurs after this tremendous show of power. And in the whisper is where we find the Lord. That's our second lesson today. Our second lesson is God appears in the whisper. See, Elijah's life is full of drama. You might expect God to appear in the drama as well because right? we see that throughout the story. But despite the chaos of the wind, despite the shaking of the earthquake, despite the destruction of the fire, God is in none of those things. Undoubtedly, all three of those events were sent by God, but just because, that's, uh, just because that's something God sent does not mean that God is in those things. Are you guys following so far? So it's not in the drama. It's not in the destruction. It's not in the over-the-top grandiose displays of power that God is in. Where is God? In the whisper. 
And we do see God show these big displays of power often in the Bible. We see it in the flood. We see it in the splitting of the Red Sea. We see it when, uh, from the fire from heaven with Elijah. We see it when Elijah goes up in the chariot of fire. We see those things. God does those things. But that doesn't mean he's in those events. Understanding the difference? God sending something versus God being in something. That's a difference, right? God's not in the wind or the earthquake or the fire, but he's in the gentle whisper. And the word they use for gentle whisper is meant to represent literally the smallest amount of anything. It's like the fine powder of dust that gets kicked up. It's the frost on a blade of grass in the morning. That's literally how the Bible uses this word in other places in the Bible. So the idea is that it's not just a whisper. It's the most tender, fragile breath of sound. God appears in the whisper. And just like Elijah, we might expect to see God in those giant displays of power and the miraculous and the explosive demonstrations, but that's not where God is. God does those things every once in a while. Yes, absolutely. But that's not where we find God. We find God in the gentleness. We find God in the whisper. We find him in the peace, in the love, in the mercy. Stop looking for God in the extravagant miracles because although God sends those things, that's not where God is. You guys following? You see, God is in the smile of a passing stranger. God is in the act of kindness to a person down on their luck. God is in the hospitality shown to a new person in town. God is in the small and almost imperceptible acts of unusual kindness and mercy. That's where God is. He's in the whisper. And this idea is further driven home by the context in which this story takes place. Because we talk about this story of Elijah, uh, or God passing before Elijah, and God passing before Moses. And this is what happens in Exodus 34, verse 5 to 7, as God passes before Moses. He proclaims his name. The Lord came down in the, in the cloud and stood there with him. I don't think it's up there, but it's fine. Um, and, and he proclaimed his name, the Lord, and he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. This is God proclaiming his own name. This is what God's glory is manifested in words. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents of the third and the fourth generation. But this is the way that God describes himself. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, abounding in faithfulness, forgiving wickedness, forgiving rebellion, forgiving sin. And the Hebrew at the end doesn't actually have the word generation. It just says punishing the wicked to the third and the fourth. That's all it says. The idea being conveyed that although God's justice is demanded for sin, although God's justice does come as punishment sometimes, it only comes to the third and the fourth, yet he maintains love to the thousands. The idea that God's love is infinitely greater than his justice, because his justice is love. Justice is an extension of his power. God appears in the whisper. And this is important for Elijah because Elijah just finished asking for this giant display of fire. In the next chapter, God's not in the fire, right? Elijah just asked for this giant display of power and then turns to slaughter 450 people. And what's interesting about this contrast between the power and the whisper is that God is trying to teach Elijah that in those elements, the wind and the earthquake and the fire, which are manifestations of Baal, by the way, that God is not in those things. God is trying to show Elijah that he isn't in the powers, even though he sends the power sometimes. Where he is, is the whisper. Where God is, is the love. 
God is trying to taper Elijah's passion for Yahweh that has manifested itself in a demand for over-the-top signs and now, unfortunately, murder of 450 people. See, God never, asked, God never asked Elijah for the showdown, but he showed up anyways to honor the prophets. Where God draws the line, that's what we find in chapter 19, is that he's not okay with the murder he just partook in, Elijah. Because even though the priests were priests of false gods and facilitated an idol worship, they were still God's children. They were still worthy of forgiveness. They were still worthy of mercy. They were still worthy of redemption. God still could have turned them around, but Elijah takes that zeal and does something else with it. And that's what God is saying. I'm not in those dramatic things. I'm not in the -the over-the-top things. I will send the fire to honor you, but that's not where I'm at. Where I am is in the whisper. Where I am is in the love. That's where you find God. And this is our final lesson because this is the most important part of the story. Our final lesson is this. God works through you. God works through you. And I know that you know this. Pretty simple. It's not that controversial of a lesson, but let me explain what I mean by this. God works through you. We are by nature broken and messed up and sinful. We are prone to mistakes and anger and emotional outbursts. We are prone to taking the things of God and twisting them into our own image, our own ideology. We are prone to making idols out of anything and everything, yet still God works through you. That means that even when you are far less than perfect, God is still working through you. Even when you are sorely mistaken and screwing up, God is still working through you. Even when your heart is in the right place and you have the right intentions, but you're going about things the wrong way, God is still working through you. Keep in mind that as much as God works through the broken version of you, God is also working through the broken version of other people around you. So that means that the people that annoy you, the people that frustrate you, the people that hurt you, the people that have different opinions than you and different viewpoints than you that are wildly different, God is still working through those people. Let me be clear, though. I don't mean that God is working through sin. I don't mean that God is working through pain and through suffering. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that despite our brokenness, God works through us for good. Even if we don't have everything 100% correct, even if we don't have the clearest picture of God, even if we don't have everything figured out, God is still working through us. See, God worked through Elijah even though Elijah was melodramatic, over-the-top, self-centered, sometimes confusing his own zeal with God's will. You see, your theology doesn't have to be 100% accurate for God to work in your life. God still works for good in your life. Your understanding of God doesn't have to be perfectly complete for God to work in your life for good. I know we're reaching almost the end of the time, but let's take a few more moments. I want to show you something, um, or actually, hopefully you can listen to this. Uh, I have a song for you. I want you to just focus on the words that are sung through this song. I put everything aside and just listen to the words of the song. Church is pretty melanin deficient, so that might not be your style of music. Um, But do you guys know who wrote this song, sang this song, produced this song? You guys know who this is, by chance? Kanye West. That was Kanye West. And I don't know if you've seen it recently over social media, but there's this huge thing going around. There's this huge buzz around that Kanye West has written a gospel album entitled Jesus is King. 
If you guys don't know who Kanye West is, Kanye West is one of the most famous musicians of our time. This is the kind of guy, this is, this is the guy who literally calls himself Jesus. This is the guy who, who has, in previous times, depicted himself through different uh, art mediums as Jesus. He's the guy who, in one of his albums, per, 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 uh, depicted himself as wearing a crown of thorns. He's the one who's literally said, I am God. That's what he said. But now he's had this complete change of life, where now he proclaims Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King. It's only Jesus. And he has this huge thing, and it's this buzz around because people, a lot of people are listening to this album or they're not even bothering to listen to it. They're just taking Kanye and they're taking all of his mistakes that he's done and they're dismissing any form of conversion, any work of Jesus in his life because of the things that he's done. And it's unfortunate because I've read it through all of these comment sections on Facebook and then Instagram and all this stuff that there are a lot of people saying there's no way Kanye could have come to Jesus. Have you seen the things that he's done? Have you heard the things that he's said? There's no way, and this is the kicker, I've literally read it, there is no way that Jesus could forgive a man like Kanye. And the worst part is that it's not coming from people outside the world, it's coming from people inside the church. A lot of people are saying there's no way that Kanye could come to God. Because look how much he's messed up. This is all fake. This is just a publicity stunt. This is just a way to revenue, uh, to to get different revenue and to make money. And and then I hear, I read a lot of comments and say, well, yeah, so what that Kanye came to Jesus? He's still worshiping on Sundays. I'm just like, whoa, like, hold on a minute. Y'all are missing the fact that one of the greatest musicians of all time has just stopped declaring himself as God and has now declared Jesus Christ as king. You guys, you guys heard that song? I'm going to invite the band to come on up as we begin to close. Because I want to focus on this. God works through you. Right? And maybe instead of focusing on someone's mistakes and on their past and what someone's gotten wrong, instead of focusing on that stuff, if we focus on the fact that God uses broken people like Kanye, broken people like me, broken people like you for good, God can do anything with anyone. I read something that said, Don't compare someone to their last mistakes. Don't remember them as their last mistakes. Because I don't want people to remember me for my last mistake. I've changed. I've grown. God has worked in my life. If God can use, listen, this is careful. If God can use the deeply messed up people in the Bible and set them up as examples of followers of God, then God can use us just the same. See, God has called us to love and to mercy and to justice, and to kindness. And we are to run for, not from our calling. See, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of freedom. He has proven again and again and again that he can come through for us, not just in the miraculous things, not just in the events in our lives, but God can through by bringing forgiveness and redemption and mercy to a person that you never thought would ever look for it. So don't let fear and uncertainty drive you from the place that God has called you to be. See God come through for you and take courage. Let his spirit strengthen you to run for your calling, not from it. You see, God is calling us to show love and extend mercy and be the gentle whisper in the world because God appears 
in the whisper. Stop looking for God in the show-stopping events. Stop looking for God in the extravagant, because if you spend your whole time looking for God there, you might miss him in the whisper, in the love, in the mercy. See, I believe that God sends miracles. I believe that God does that. But where God truly is, where the manifestation of his glory is, is in the gentle love of Jesus in the world. You don't have to change the whole world to fulfill your calling. You just need to act in the world around you. You start with the person next to you. Start with the extraordinarily ordinary love that God is calling us to. And remember this, God works through you. See, God is faithful again and again and again. The fact that he can take broken people like us and use us for good is just a testament of his glory and his goodness. So that means that even when you've messed up, even when you're feeling down and depressed and feeling entirely alone, even when you don't have all things together, God will still work through you for good. No one no one has it all figured out. Not a single one of us can come even close to perfection. And while God does eventually help us grow, while God does eventually bring us into a better understanding of who he really is and what he really wants for our lives, still in our brokenness, he works with us. You see, God wants to work through you. God has a place and a calling for your life. So the question we ask ourselves then is, are we willing to let God work through us? Are we willing to let God show himself as faithful again and again? Are you where God wants you to be?